Welcome to Bench Talk, the week in science. My name is Dave Robinson. And I'm Ashley Best. You're listening to WFMP Louisville, 106.5 FM. This show's about bringing science to the people. We'll be bringing you weekly updates on new research that is important to all of us and celebrating evidence-based policy. We've scoured the library stacks for interesting articles, climbed the hill to stay informed on science policy, and performed some experiments of our own. We're here as a conduit of all things science. So, let's get started. Scott here. May is upon us, bringing warm days and not overly cool evenings. Darkness comes much later in the day, closer to 9 to 9.30. This does force a bit of a dilemma. Warm enough to step outside, but late enough to possibly call it a day, especially after a long day at work. So I opt for the weekends, perhaps with some friends after the grill has been put away, and we can just sit around and talk and view the stars overhead. The Big Dipper is well placed high up in the northern sky, nearly overhead. At this time of the year, I can really put it through its paces in using it to find other constellations. When closer to the northeastern horizon, or later this year as it sinks closer to the northwest, the bowl of the Dipper can be used for finding the North Star, Polaris, as I have pointed out in other broadcasts. But these warmer evenings encourage one to stay out longer, so more can be found. For example, if I follow the curved handle of the Big Dipper, I am led to one bright star and then another. The first star is called Arcturus. One can remember its name because one followed an arc to Arcturus. The second bright star found along the curve is Spica. Its name can be remembered because one speeds on to Spica. Arcturus is the brightest star in a constellation known as Boötes. The shape of this constellation is sort of like a diamond, or kite-shaped, with Arcturus at the base of the kite, and a set of stars north of Arcturus just beyond the handle of the Big Dipper finishing that diamond-shaped kite. Or perhaps one can see it as an ice cream cone, with a scoop of ice cream left on it, after the other scoop lies off east of Boötes in the form of the constellation Corona Borealis, the Northern Crown. Spica, the second star found from the curve of the Big Dipper's handle, is in the constellation Virgo the Maiden. Virgo is a long, sprawling constellation. North of Spica, you might see two arms of stars, almost as if this portion of Virgo looks like the letter Y, with Spica being the base of the Y. Heading off toward the southeastern horizon, and perhaps best found with a star map, is a group of stars shaped sort of like a rectangle, with Spica one corner of that rectangle. After stretching my imagination a bit on those constellations, I can return to the bowl of the Big Dipper to see what else can be found. A line along the back of the bowl of the Dipper, starting with the star closest to the handle and extending to the bottom star marking the back of the bottom of the bowl, will continue on toward a bright star called Regulus. Regulus is the brightest star in the constellation Leo the Lion. With a bit of concentration, it is not too hard to find a lion in the sky. Start with Regulus, and it is possible to see a curve of stars of about the same brightness above it. When combined with Regulus, this almost looks like part of a backwards question mark. This would be the head, mane, and neck of the lion. East of this grouping is a right triangle of stars. This would fill in the back end of the lion. I generally picture Leo lying down in the sky, with front paws extended ahead of it, and its back paws tucked under it. This might be compared to the lions one can see at the zoo, especially the males, 
which often lie regally on the ground or on a rock surveying their domain. But maybe Leo is hunched down ready to attack its next meal. In the area found just west of the head of Leo are the collection of stars called Cancer the Crab. Cancer has no real shape to speak of and consists of dim stars. In fact, you know you have gone too far if you reach the pair of bright stars side by side which are part of Gemini the Twins. During the first full two weeks of May, after Derby, many of the constellations just mentioned will provide a path across the sky for the moon. By the beginning of that first full week, the moon will be a thin crescent in the southern half of Gemini, just a bit closer to the western horizon than the stars Castor and Pollux. These two stars mark the heads of the twins, so the moon can be said to be closer to their legs. By the 10th of May, the nearly first quarter moon will lie among the dim stars of Cancer. Over the next three days, the moon will be seen getting fuller, and will be traveling through and a bit south of Leo. Three more days will be needed for the moon to move through the next constellation on its path, the constellation Virgo. It will be closest to speak of on the 15th. Full moon is on the 18th, and the moon will be off in the direction of two other constellations, better seen in the early summer skies, the constellations Libra and Scorpius. The full moon seen in May is known as the flower moon. Native Americans provided this name because of the blooming of flowers as spring returned. Other cultures referred to it as the corn planting moon or the milk moon. Late evening, especially later in May, marks the return of some of the easier found planets, Jupiter and Saturn. Both are rising after midnight in May. Getting up before dawn on the 20th and 21st of May will let the moon help spot Jupiter as it passes north of that planet over those two days. Over the next two mornings, the moon will be seen passing just south of Saturn. Of course, Mars still lingers in the evening skies. The moon can be used to verify spotting it on May 7th, when the waxing crescent moon will be just south of that dimming planet. So in conclusion, there is quite a bit to lure one out on clear, warmish May evenings. Constellations abound that have a means for finding bright stars within them, and shapes that may help identify them. There is the ever-changing moon dancing among some of them. Planets, too, can be found either early on after sunset or well-placed in the morning skies before the sun has a chance to rise, hiding the scene. I will likely be taking advantage of this when clear skies permit. Hello there. Well, it's horse racing time in Kentucky again, with the Keeneland Racetrack in Lexington, Kentucky, having their spring meet right now, and Churchill Downs here in Louisville starting their season this week, highlighted by the Kentucky Derby on Saturday. Well, our local newspaper here in Louisville, the Courier Journal, recently published a very long and quite shocking expose about the dangers of thoroughbred horse racing. The Courier Journal article was published on April 14, 2019, and was written by Laura Unger, who I thought did a fantastic job on this piece. The article specifically focused on the high number of injuries to the jockeys who ride the thoroughbreds in these horse races. Now, it's not just about the jockeys. You're probably aware that racehorses are very susceptible to injury, too. These young horses weigh about 1,100 pounds each. There's a large number of animals crowded into a single pack going around the track. They're running very long distances, getting weary, 
traveling at speeds of more than 35 miles an hour, accidents are going to happen. I remember hearing a horse expert on TV years ago saying that thoroughbreds were like small tanks with legs of glass. As you probably know already, horse injuries at racetracks are up this year, and almost every time a horse is injured on the track, there's probably a human being on that horse, a jockey. Well, I looked through the research literature as well as I could to find out more about this issue, and I wanted to tell you about it. There was an article published in the Journal of Neurosurgery in April of 2016 that assessed various sports for the incidence of traumatic brain injury, TBI. Some 2.5 million people in the U.S. seek treatment for traumatic brain injury every year. Some 70 to 90 percent of all TBI could be thought of as concussions, which is a type of injury to the brain that might involve temporarily losing consciousness, but not always. Symptoms of concussion includes things like headaches, confusion, dizziness, seeing stars, slurred speech, delayed response to questions, dazed looks, fogginess, etc. Now, concussions can seem relatively mild at first because after the shock of being hit in the head, the person eventually snaps out of it, they'll stand up, they appear to recover pretty quickly. But it turns out concussions can have long-term effect on brain functioning and mental health. One of the reasons for this is epigenetics. Epigenetics is when the expression of our gene is changed, even though the actual DNA sequence is not altered. In the case of concussions, the DNA code for some genes gets methylated, while the histones that are bound to the DNA of other genes can get chemically modified in such a way that gene transcription gets altered. And Gene transcription is basically the synthesis of RNA that leads to the synthesis of proteins, which actually do things in the cell. So these epigenetic changes of our DNA can have long-term effects on the brain. The jury is still out about how long these epigenetic changes last, however. Actually, I did a show about concussions experienced by football players back on our very first episode of this show, Bench Talk. Check out our broadcast from August 6, 2018 on Forward Radio's website for this show. For that story, I reviewed a current article that found evidence of brain damage in football players who were actually quite young. It was shocking, really. Football is a dangerous sport. The authors of the paper I'm reviewing today are at the University of California in San Francisco, and they point out that when it comes to brain injury, quote, even comparatively mild injury, especially when repetitive, is not without cognitive or neuropsychiatric consequences and may contribute to the development of neurodegeneration, known as chronic traumatic encephalopathy. Now, chronic traumatic encephalopathy, CTE, is the brain disease that was depicted in the movie that came out in 2015 called Concussion, This movie, Concussion, starred the actor Will Smith, and it's the true story of a pathologist who discovered that several veteran professional football players back in the early 2000s showed signs of chronic traumatic encephalopathy, presumably due to the brain trauma that football players experience during the game. CTE is a neurodegenerative disease which causes behavioral problems, 
mood issues. It can lead to dementia and even suicide. So to get back to this brain injury paper, since there are 2.5 million traumatic brain injuries every year, what's causing them? Specifically, how many of these injuries are due to athletics? And of those, what sport is the most risky? Is it football or is it some other sport? So what they did was assess the National Trauma Data Bank. The National Trauma Data Bank is run by the American College of Surgeons. And it's a place where physicians who work in emergency rooms and trauma centers can report the cases that they see every year. So our researchers examined some 4,800 different brain trauma cases in adults that were reported between the years 2003 to 2012, but only those that had something to do with sports. Of all the adult brain traumas reported in this database, only 1.5% actually occurred due to an athletic activity. So the vast majority of brain injuries are due to other things like car accidents and falling, violence, etc. But our researchers were specifically interested in sports injuries the question of which sport appears to be causing the most trauma in the athletes playing them. They classified each of these brain injury cases into one of five different kinds of sports, five basic categories. The first category was aquatic sports like swimming, diving, boating, water skiing. Another was skiing and snowboarding. The third category were roller sports like roller skating and skateboarding. The fourth was what they called fall and interpersonal contact, which is an interesting name. But presumably that includes sports like football, hockey, soccer, rugby, boxing, baseball, basketball, etc. And then the fifth category of sports that they looked at were equestrian and other horse-related sports like rodeo riding and horse racing. Drum roll, please. So, of those five kinds of sports which was associated with the most of the 4,800 sports-related brain trauma cases that they looked at over this 10-year period. It's not what you think. It's the horse-related sports. More than 45% of the brain trauma cases they looked at occurred during horse races, rodeos, show jumping, horse cross-country, etc. These brain trauma cases average 216 cases among adults in the United States every year. This was more than twice the number seen in the fall and interpersonal contact sports like football and hockey. Now, 99.5% of these horse-related brain injuries occurred when the patient was actually riding the horse. They cited another paper in their discussion that claimed that when normalized for hours of activity, horseback riding results in a higher rate of hospital admission than any other high-risk activity they looked at, like motorcycle riding. They highly recommend that anyone getting on a horse needs to wear a helmet. They also reported that the risk of brain trauma when riding a horse increases with the age of the rider. Now, on today's show, we're focused more on professional thoroughbred racing, which is only a subcategory of that group of equestrian sports. But I can tell you that horse racing jockeys do experience a big risk of injury when riding. There was a paper published in 2013 in the journal called Orthopedic Journal of Sports Medicine, where the authors examined jockey falls, injuries, and fatalities associated with thoroughbred racing in California between the years 2007 to 2011. 
they reported that in California, a jockey would fall off their horse about once every 500 rides. Half of these falls resulted in injury to the jockey, and there was one jockey death during that five-year period. Over a 72-year period, looking at jockey deaths in the U.S., Canada, and Mexico combined, there was an average of 2.1 jockey deaths every year. And according to the Jockey Club Registry, there were 493 horse fatalities on racetracks in 2018. That averages out to be about 1.3 horses dying on the track every day, every day of the year. That's nine horses per week dying. And that doesn't even include the number of horses that are injured but not killed. And the majority of the time, when a horse is injured or dies on the track, there's probably a jockey on that horse. And so that puts the jockey at risk, too. There's a quote from a jockey in that Courier-Journal article, quote, In our sport, it's kind of when you are going to fall, not if you're going to fall, unquote. This newspaper article quotes an official from the Jockey Guild saying that a number of jockeys have had to quit their careers early because of concussions. Now, this rate of one injury per 500 races might seem low to you, but remember that career jockeys often ride 10 races on a single day. Gary Stevens, the photogenic jockey who essentially played himself in the Hollywood movie Seabiscuit, which came out in 2003, Gary Stevens won 5,000 races by the time he retired in 2005. So if he won 5,000 races, who knows how many races he actually was in during his career. And why did Gary Stevens retire in 2005 at only the age of 42? His health. In 1985, Gary Stevens was thrown from a horse and was in a coma for 16 hours. In 2003, he was thrown by a horse and then trampled by another horse, which collapsed his lung and damaged his neck. Gary Stevens had chronic knee problems and eventually had to have a knee replacement. And he had assorted surgeries on his right wrist and both of his shoulders. Gary Stevens eventually had a hip replacement, too. He was actually called the bionic man around the racetrack because he had had so many surgeries. Gary Stevens retired finally. He really, really retired just last year after another accident where he permanently damaged his spinal column. Now, the good news from this 2013 study in California was that jockey injury rates there appeared to be generally on the decline over the decades. So that's good news. The Courier-Journal article interviewed Pat Day, the now-retired legendary jockey. Pat Day's won nine different Triple Crown races in his lifetime. Pate told the newspaper that he suffered a concussion in 2000 when his horse tripped during a race at Keeneland. The horse slumped over and slammed Pate onto the ground, knocking him out. At one point in his career, he also had to have hip surgery. Apparently, almost every jockey has a story to tell about getting a concussion during a race. One of the problems is that jockeys need to make money. Maybe they're paid by a retainer. Maybe they're just paid by how many rides they're in. But either way, they need to be in races to make a living. So even though they might have a head injury, there's a lot of financial pressure on them to get back on another horse as soon as possible. Maybe even that same day and ride again. So there's financial pressure to continue to ride even after they've been hurt. But there's also some cultural pressure to shake off the injury. Maybe it's kind of a macho thing, you know, show that you can handle it and get back on that horse. 
This Courier-Journal article quotes five-time Kentucky Derby jockey Rajiv Marag, who was remarking about the severe concussion he experienced at Belmont Park in 2007. He says, quote, I was back riding within two weeks. I've seen so many jockeys getting hit in the head and going back to ride without being in the right shape, unquote. Well, the problem with that is that if jockeys do get back in the saddle, but then experience another blow to the head, they risk experiencing what's called second head impact syndrome, which can cause bleeding under the skull, it can cause coma, or even death. And the chances of that second head impact probably goes up after the first concussion, because especially if the rider's on the horse too early, they might not be thinking straight and make a mistake. When Pat Day was knocked to the ground in a race back in 2000, he experienced a concussion, but he was not tested afterwards. Pat Day said, quote, I wouldn't want to ride out there with others who didn't have their wits about them, and I wouldn't want to ride without my wits about me. So the bottom line is, horse jockeys are having a lot of concussions. Now, whether horse jockeys have higher levels of CTE, chronic traumatic encephalopathy, that's another question. We know that that's happening in football players, but there doesn't seem to be much research on jockeys. Now, I know this is a science show, but while we're on this topic of head injuries to jockeys, I should tell you that horse racing in the U.S. lags behind other sports when it comes to evaluating the athlete, the jockey, for concussions and determining when they can safely return to their sport. And U.S. horse racing is lagging behind horse racing in other countries as well. So Great Britain, for instance, is 15 years ahead of us in dealing with this problem, and Australia is like 20 years ahead of us in dealing with head injuries to jockeys. Horse racing in this country doesn't have a centralized governing body to establish uniform medical standards across the country. It's It's really up to each state to set their own racetrack safety standards and protocols. Just this year, Maryland adopted the nation's highest safety standards, whereas Florida doesn't appear to monitor the health and safety of their jockeys at all. Now, like me, at this point, you might be thinking, why don't they just design really good helmets? But the answer is not designing better helmets, because whereas helmets are great for protecting the scalp and preventing fractures to the skull... They really can't prevent what's happening inside the skull. They can't prevent the brain from getting jostled around in the skull during impact. There is a head injury specialist in London, England, Dr. Michael Turner, quoted in this paper who said, There are no helmets anywhere in the world that have been proven to mitigate concussions. Dr. Turner described the system they have in England. Don't forget, they're 15 years ahead of us. There, each jockey is given a baseline test for concussions. Basically, this concussion baseline test is sort of like a computer game, and it checks the person's short-term memory. It tests their ability to match different colors and different shapes with each other, and it tests their response times in these tasks. And then once you have this baseline and there is a head injury, the patient can be tested again to see if their performance level has changed. If a jockey is diagnosed as having a concussion, they are immediately suspended from racing for a minimum of six days. Then they're tested again, and if their score is still lower, they could be suspended for another two weeks. 
And if this happens in England, just to reduce some of the financial pressure on the jockey, all the medical costs for the jockey are covered by the Central Horse Racing Authority. And the injured jockeys are actually paid a weekly wage while they're off track. I don't think we'll be seeing anything like that in the horse racing industry here in the United States anytime soon. In fact, here in the United States, most racetracks don't even have healthcare providers on track who specialize in sports medicine or who are trained to deal with concussions. It looks like things might be changing, however. A few states like Maryland and California are starting to take action against horse racing concussions. And more jockeys are taking concussions more seriously now. Now, many thoroughbred racetracks in the United States have joined a three-year pilot study that's being run by the University of Kentucky that requires each jockey to get a baseline concussion assessment. The study's goal is to eventually develop a protocol for dealing with horse racing concussions. Actually, Keeneland Racetrack has already established a comprehensive concussion protocol And they appear to be quite forward-thinking in how they're dealing with this problem. For instance, they've got a state-of-the-art first aid station now. Although Churchill Downs has not done this yet, they are involved with this UK study. The Courier-Journal got no comment from Churchill Downs about their future plans about dealing with concussions. And I shouldn't end this story without at least mentioning the other half of the horse racing equation, the horses themselves. As of this writing, there have been 23 horse deaths at the Santa Anita racetrack in California, and that's just in the last four months. Last year, there were 493 horses who died on the racetrack somewhere in the U.S. That's actually down from 10 years ago when it was 790 horses died. Well, one of the biggest changes that have happened in the last 10 years when horse racing fatalities have dropped from about 800 to 500 is the use of softer synthetic surfaces on the tracks. Instead of just sand, this synthetic material is a mixture of sand, rubber, recycled carpet fibers, wax, things like that. And it makes for a much softer surface, which is more forgiving on the horses. So ideally, it would cause less injury to the horses. And it also might cause less injury to the jockey when they fall on it. Well, there were complaints about the synthetic tracks. Maybe it slowed the horses down a little bit. Maybe the horses performed a little less predictably. So many racetracks have now removed this synthetic surface and gone back to just the dirt surface, which is basically just sand. Keeneland's gone back to sand, Del Mar, the Santa Anita tracks. They've now removed that softer synthetic surface and gone back to a traditional surface. So that's probably a factor in describing why Santa Anita Track has lost 23 horses in the last few months, which is record high, because they've gone back to that traditional harder surface. And Keeneland's already lost three horses just this season. I like the quote at the end of Laura Unger's article in the Courier-Journal. It's by famous jockey Rajiv Marag, and he says, quote, We really need the rest of the industry to step up to the plate and start implementing this stuff at the racetracks, and not just putting it on idle. We're behind the times. We need to get going, because we have a lot of catching up to do. Well, that's the show this week. Thank you for listening to Bench Talk, The Week in Science. We think the world is a fascinating place, and science is a good way to explore it. Science truly empowers all of us. If you want to learn more about the show, go to our Facebook page. Just search for 
Bench Talk, two words on Facebook. You can also email us at benchtalkradio at gmail.com. That's one word, benchtalkradio at gmail.com. Now, all of our episodes are podcasted on SoundCloud, so just visit the station's website at www.forwardradio.org and scroll down to the program archives. That's www.forwardradio.org to listen to any of our old episodes. If you live outside of the Louisville broadcast area, you can still listen to us on live stream at that same website, www.forwardradio.org. This show is broadcast on WFMP LP 106.5 FM every Monday at 7.30 p.m. That's Eastern Time. 11.30 a.m. every Tuesday and 7.30 a.m. every Wednesday. Thank you for listening to WFMP LP 106.5 FM, your grassroots, volunteer-run, listener-supported community radio station in Louisville, Kentucky where there is still a little room for evidence-based rational analysis. Thank you.